This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Yes. Awesome. All righty. Good morning and good afternoon to others um, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday School Study. Um, today, March 28th um, with Darius Gray. As a reminder, we meet on the second and fourth Sundays. We record the sessions and post them. You can find um, you can find prior sessions and this one eventually uh, through our website on dialoguejournal.com um, or by searching YouTube. My name is Dela Namasimaku, and I will be conducting on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board today. Um, other board members, um, Chris Kimball, Michael Austin, Rebecca Deschweinitz, and Molly Benyon, um, are also part of our group today. We're using our webinar format on Zoom and running a live stream on Facebook and recording this program as well. For viewers on Zoom, there is a chat function and by, and by which you can comment, ask questions and propose answers. We also follow comments on Facebook and introduce questions from Facebook uh, when appropriate. Um, to begin, we're honored today to have with us today, restoration pioneer, Brother Darius Gray. Um, I'll introduce him a little bit. Uh, he's trained in broadcast journalism with degrees from the University of Utah and Columbia University. Brother Gray worked for KSL radio and television during the late 1960s and early 1970s. He especially enjoyed documentary film production and was privileged to be placed on loan to UNICEF for the purpose of filming grassroots aid projects in several um, African countries. Later, he was Director of Development for the Department of Communications at Brigham Young University, where he also co-hosted Questions and Ancestors, a nationally aired program um, on genealogy and participated in the highly acclaimed PBS family history series, Ancestors, produced by KBYU-TV. Um, he's also involved in the KUED documentary, Utah's African-American Voices and Utah's Freedom Writers. Perhaps Brother Gray's uh, greatest genealogical uh, accomplishment was as co-director of the 11-year uh, project to organize and digitize the Freedmen's Bank records. He co-authored with Margaret Young an award-winning tr uh, trilogy of novels about early Black Mormon pioneers entitled Standing on the Promises. He and Margaret also co-produced two documentary films, Jane Manning James, Your Sister in the Gospel, and Nobody Knows the Untold Story of Black Mormons. A noted civic leader, Brother Gray served as a counselor and then president of the Genesis branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, the Genesis organization was established under the direction of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1971, with the goal of providing support to Black Latter-day Saints. Um, so we're thrilled to have him today. Um, we'll begin um, today a little differently um, uh, with a pre-recorded conversation between Brother Gray and Carrie and Mel Hamilton, facilitated by Margaret and Bruce Young. Uh, Darius and Mel met in 1969 when Mel was a University of Wyoming football player, one of the 14 removed from the team after wearing black armbands to protest BYU and the LDS Church's priesthood temple restrictions. In this conversation, they discuss uh, the conspiracy theories rampant in the 1960s and the 1970s, attitudes in the LDS church then and now, and life in the United States with racial divides. Um, after the video, then we are grateful to have Brother Gray with us live today uh, for uh, a Q&A. Um, and as always is the case, uh, the views expressed today are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any um, other organization. 
Okay, so with that being said, we'll open our meeting um, with a prayer by dialogue board member Molly Benyon. Um, and after the prayer, we'll have just a couple welcome remarks uh, by Brother Gray and then begin the pre-recorded conversation. Oh, and one last note, um, while the pre-recorded conversation is going on, um, feel free to, to post questions um, in the chat. We'll be watching them as they come through um, and bring them up after the video. Brother Gay, you're welcome for any welcome remarks you had. Good morning, all. Happy uh, Sabbath day. And also, welcome to Dialogue Sunday School. Um, I found this unusual attachment this morning. It's called a necktie. I haven't had to wear one of these in a while, I'm happy to say. But here we are. At any rate, um, as has been stated, you're going to see some video, and uh, I hope you'll find that informative. I hope it will prompt a conversation, but we aren't going to be limited in conversation to the, the contents of the video. Um, everything uh, is pretty much on the table, and uh, as long as it's in good taste and trying to help inform and uplift. So with that, uh, we'll see you on the backside. Welcome. We are sharing the following conversation in connection with the film titled Companions. If you've seen the film, thank you. If not, we hope you will watch it and spend some time pondering the issues it raises. We intend this movie and its earlier installment, Heart of Africa, to open the film industry in the Congo and also to open conversations throughout the world. Though we took fictional liberties, the story presented in both of these films was inspired by real events. We began thinking of this film when we sent American and Canadian missionaries to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. As we corresponded with them, we were touched as several recognized racism within their own hearts. It's easier to recognize racism in someone else than in ourselves. They use racial epithets, right? Like Elder Martin almost saying the strongest epithet and then coming up with jungle monkey as he insults his companion. But racism isn't limited to such obvious language. It's found in any attitudes or perceptions that classify others who are different as inferior or enemies. The truth is racism or tribalism finds its way into nearly every culture. So the question isn't whether or not you're racist, but how you are addressing your racism. How does your own tribalism affect your thinking and feelings? What are you doing to expand your heart? This film also deals with the idea of a curse. We're grateful for these clarifications by the LDS Church leadership. Note that the word disavows means rejects or considers to be untrue. Here's the statement. Today the Church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life, that mixed-race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. For the next 30 minutes, we'll show you a fascinating conversation between two African-American men who are dear friends, though they met at opposite ends of a divide. Melvin Hamilton, um, I am the proud graduate from Boystown, Nebraska, which I credit with 
civilizing me. Uh, and then uh, a graduate from the University of Wyoming, one of the, the Black 14 um, at the University of Wyoming um, that protest against the uh, policy that Blacks could not be priests in the Mormon church. I'm Darius Gray, um, son of um, goodly parents and uh, raised in Colorado Springs, Colorado with a Southern upbringing, uh, converted to uh, the LDS Church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1964, coming in with a Christian foundation. Um, I have been a Latter-day Saint uh, for the past, uh, if I'm trying to do the math in my head, about 55 years, I think, something like that. In 1969, Mel Hamilton was a member of the Black 14 at the University of Wyoming. The 14 were football players coached by Lloyd Eaton. The players wanted to protest Brigham Young University by wearing black armbands. We go into Eaton's office and we tell him that uh, we want to protest and we want to protest by wearing black armbands. And of course, he denied that. And rather than to discuss what options we had, he just summarily uh, dismissed us. There was no room for discussion. He did not give us a chance to say a word. He berated us by saying that we came from broken homes even pointed out Tony McGee and said that I found you picking up cigarette butts off the sidewalk and and look what you want to do to me. And so it was really a lashing. That is how the, the whole situation started. The Black Student Alliance was going to do something anyway. And they asked, what were you football players going to provide and we went among ourselves and discussed it, came back to the group and said, we will participate in the protest. And that's how we came up with the black armbands as a universal sign of distress, death, or, or some kind of a problem. And um, I guess, like they say, the rest is history. Darius Gray was a news reporter in Salt Lake City and a Latter-day Saint who was asked to fly to Wyoming to meet with the 14. These many years later, Darius and Mel are dear friends, having found ways to respect each other despite their differences. Darius attended the 2019 recognition of the Black 14 at the University of Wyoming. The LDS Institute students made black armbands for the event. I remember when Darius came down and now I would not do this, but the television people told me not to talk to them. Uh, I was very willing to do the conversation with the, the ministers, uh, but I was informed by the television people, no, 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 you don't want to do that by yourself. But uh, today I would not let that happen. I would have discussed whatever they wanted to discuss. So I wasn't putting you off that time, Darius. I just didn't have the, the confidence to uh, do it 
at that time, but it would not happen today. And I wasn't there representing the uh, station in my broadcast and uh, journalistic function. I was just there as a um, Black Latter-day Saint and mm -hmm. uh, trying to answer questions. And so, no, there, there was no sense of that from you to me that there was any hesitation there at all. And when I say I, I see us as being on the same side, uh, we are both proud black men. We know who we are. We're proud of who we are. We were proud back then. Um, mm -hmm. We weren't running away from our ethnicity and from our history. So we may have been coming at it somewhat differently, but we were on the same side. Yeah. You know, and exactly different methods. And yes. I, for a while, I did not, I did not think that it should, people should be quietly working for changes. Um, at the time, I thought, you know, I am a warrior in this matter, and and people need to know I'm a warrior. And by God, I'm going to tell you what I think, and you need to listen to me. But I didn't realize that at that time that behind the scene was just as effective. Everybody has their role in this play. And um, so when I met you and, and talked at the university, that's when I realized that, you know, he may have been effective uh, even more than me working behind the scenes. And that's when I began to respect what you were doing. Yeah, thank you. You're kind. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, good cop, bad cop. We get it done. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the question in 2020 is that the the Black 14 protests in, in the 1969 really launched nationwide protests where the Black armband was used by teams all across the nation. And the response mm -hmm. to Coach Eaton firing the teams and the, the team members and saying, you can go back on Negro relief, which also mm -hmm. indicates a particular mindset that showed something. I remember as a second grader in Wilmington, North Carolina, I, I uh, would walk downtown and of course there's the um, official magistrate office and I walked through that building as a shortcut. Well, every time I walked into the building, I saw the sign that said, colored fountain, white fountain. Here I am second grade and I, I would look and I said, I've got to taste that water in the white fountain. And it must have taken me most of the year passing that white fountain. And I just, I have to drink out of that white fountain. Of course, when I walked in, the, the office doors were open, people were walking around. So I'm looking around, making sure nobody's watching me. And sure enough, I get the gumption to taste that water. I turned that water on, sipped it, and ran out to the other end. And then I said, is that it? I was so disappointed. It was just like my water. And that's when I realized, wait a minute. You know, not being able to articulate it that young, I said to myself, what? What? <laughs> so uh, that was my first defiance, 
and I build upon that as I grew. But even as a second grader, I knew there was something wrong. And I, I, I tell that story because it, it, it gave me the foundation I needed to question things as I grew older. The way it started is the very thing you're talking about, Mel. Um, here you are in a second, as a second grader and seeing the sign, you know, white drinking fountain, the colored drinking fountain. Uh, it didn't start that way in the LDS church with uh, something being in the Book of Mormon. It started in the hearts of men and women who saw you and me and those like us as less than, as not being fully children of God, as you indicated. And uh, that was a point of uh, use that made it possible for people to enslave other human beings. So that's how it came about for you, for me, for our parents, grandparents. I'm so grateful for so many things, one of which is that uh, my father was born in 1896. Um, that's the same year as a Supreme Court case called Plessy versus Ferguson was decided. Uh, his father, my grandfather, uh, was born in 1859. My grandfather was born in Missouri as a slave uh, two years before the start of the Civil War, one year before Lincoln was elected. And I used to grow up hearing stories uh, back in slave times, such and such and such and such. And so I, I got an education that way to see how people treated other people. And uh, there's a continuity that has come forward, whether it was back then or whether it's now. It's how others see us. And you, you, you've mentioned that. Um, we are fully one another, brother and sister. And yet we have to somehow find a way to diminish that. And um, you, as you said, I guess we aren't their neighbors. Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's funny, uh, the excuses that you give. I have tried most of my life and, and, and half not realizing what I was doing, but most of my life to uh, include people as I meet them, include them into my life, um, include them into... A life of love and friendship. It, 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 it has to be a conscious effort, I think, that you do this. If you don't go out and help thy brother, help thy sister, then you're contrary to the will of God. And that's how I view it. Back in 1970, I guess it was, uh, our home teachers came around with an alleged prophecy from John uh, uh, Taylor, who was a, a prophet just uh, after Brigham Young, that uh, presented said that in the latter in the latter days. So they were we were thinking 1970. That's us. Uh, Negroes will come from Los Angeles and they will invade Salt Lake City, uh, ravish the women in the temple, go into the temple, ravish the women, and the young men of Zion will rise up. I, I was at age 14, I had, uh, I had met black people in Indiana, but I had no friends who were black. Provo, Utah was 
completely white. Uh, and I, I really didn't have a place to file that information. It was publicly disavowed two weeks later. Did people continue believing it? Well, I'm guessing they did. Darius, if you could tell a little bit about what happened to you when that false prophecy was being circulated, a conspiracy theory such as we're seeing nowadays, what happened to you in Salt Lake City? That um, conspiracy theory, that false prophecy, seemed to rise up every six months, um, especially just before the LDS Church uh, had its general conference. And uh, yeah, I, again, I, I uh, was working as a broadcaster, as a journalist, and um, I happened one day to be downtown at the, um, I think it was Hall of Justice, it was called, the building where the Salt Lake City Police Department was housed. Uh, the chief of police, Dewey Phyllis, uh, was a friend of mine. He had attended uh, my wedding. Uh, he and his wife had dined in our apartment and we had dined in their home. And uh, at any rate, uh, I just dropped by. It wasn't my beat, but I just wanted to say hi to Dewey. And he invited me into his inner office and there was this large table with a, I think it's called a relief map um, with all the contours and everything. And it was of the Salt Lake Valley in Salt Lake City. And uh, he was showing me the plans that were already in place to deal with this supposed influx coming in to rape and pillage in the Salt Lake Temple. And so all of a sudden, it wasn't just hearing something uh, that uh, was going around, uh, something that was being copied on copy machines or maybe graphed out back in those days. Um, all of a sudden, it became very, very tangible. Um, as the chief of police, Dewey had been in charge or in touch with the uh, governor, Cal Rampton's office, also had been in touch with the uh, head of the Utah Guard, uh, National Guard. And plans were indeed put in place and ready for this influx that never was, never did happen. It was never a reality. But uh, they had um, located uh, spots to bivouac the National Guard when the governor activated the guard. Uh, one of the spots was uh, one of the high schools here. I remember West High. And um, in his office, the chief of police had a cot and other equipment that would be the type of equipment that the guardsmen would have that was set to be set up in that high school as a bivouac area. Um, so here were all of these plans um, because to them it had to be real. Um, this was going to happen. And uh, I would get reports um, from time to time. Uh, the bus just uh, got into Las Vegas. The bus loads are just uh, getting into Las Vegas or leaving Las Vegas, and they're on their way. And of course, there wasn't a single bus, and uh, there may have been a car with a black person or two in it, but they weren't coming to Utah to rape and pillage in the temple. Mm -hmm. But those were the sorts of things that came about. And you talk about fear. Um, Mel, I'm a shooter too, and uh, have always been, grew up as a country boy, and uh, anyway, there was a little gun store here uh, named Guns Unlimited, and with all of these rumors going around, um, I thought, you know, I, I have a permit to carry, and that was back in the day when it wasn't common, but I had a permit to carry, but I wanted a different uh, holster than I had. 
And so I was down at Guns Unlimited and uh, looking for a holster for this particular sidearm. And um, it was during the day and not very busy. And uh, there were two white men and geez, I'm going to say maybe eight feet away, 10 feet away and uh, from me. And um, uh, as I was looking at uh, the holsters, they were having a conversation that was obviously intended for me to hear. And one of them said to the other that uh, he had gotten a, a special uh, Temple Recommend, uh, and he was going to be in the East Towers of the Salt Lake Temple. And he mentioned the weapon he had, uh, the caliber and the scope and all the rest. And he said I, he could pick a nigger off down Main Street two blocks. And oh they said that for my benefit. And then after they said it, they looked at me like, you heard that, didn't you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I heard that, but I wasn't going to give them any satisfaction. I was not going to run out of there. I was not going to get mouthy. No, but that is how overt it was when you've got someone standing there telling you they can pick a nigger off down Main Street two blocks. Yeah. yeah. I took all of my weapons, made sure they were sighted in. I was uh, sort of a, an official range officer at the police pistol range. And uh, I sighted everything in. I bought extra ammo. And uh, I thought, you know, if things get ugly around here, um, I'll probably want to get out of town. And my wife, she can go and get on an airplane or a train or something. But I know I better not try to go to any public transportation. I actually made provisions for me to get out of the Salt Lake Valley on horseback. My goodness. Um, and those are not things one forgets easily. Uh, to feel so isolated, and, and that was it. To know that there are people looking at you and thinking the worst of you and willing to put you in the crosshairs of a scope if you happen to be that person two blocks down. I cannot understand how today Christians of whatever denomination whatever denomination, if they claim Christ, how they can treat one another as they are, how they can view one another as they do, how they can demean and diminish someone's right to be as they do. Uh, it, it just does not compute for me. And, and I ache. And one of the things that happened back in the day of the, that conspiracy and Blacks were going to come in and do all these things, it was how isolated I felt going to church. Um, it was the isolation, the uncertainty. Who is on my side? Uh, who would be there if things became difficult? And it's starting to feel that way today. Uh, because of COVID, um, churches less attended than it was. It was off limits at one point, as you well know. And um, now those of my age group, our age group, uh, have been advised uh, not necessarily to attend, of course, for our health sake. But it makes me wonder, where are my brothers and sisters in my ward? Um, based on the voting patterns that we see here in the state of Utah and who it is and policies they support, it makes me wonder, am I as isolated again as I felt back then? And uh, I don't know the answer, but it's disquieting. It troubles my soul. Um, I'm grateful that I had 
the Christian experience that I did before becoming a Latter-day Saint. I'm extremely grateful for my Latter-day Saint experience, past and current, but the foundation that I received prior to that was key. It gave me the footing that I needed and it has protected me and carried me through. And uh, I'm grateful for both. They work well together. I feel badly for those who haven't had that broad experience, whether it was in the Roman Catholic faith or wherever, where the real center is on Christ and following the two great commandments and, um, you know, being neighbors. You know, being isolated as you felt, what drew you to the LDS religion, even with those feeling of the abandonment, maybe being Ireland by yourself, those feelings, how, what is there in the LDS religion that keeps you there? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I did not know of the attitudes and policies that were in the LDS church when I was exploring it. And uh, it came down to actually the day before my scheduled baptism, before I learned that I wouldn't be able to hold the priesthood and that I was viewed as cursed. The day before my scheduled baptism, it was 1964, Christmas Day, the 25th of December. And that was on a Friday. And I was set to be baptized on December 26th, Saturday. And yet, even though it was the holiday, uh, I met with the two Mormon missionaries uh, who had been my teachers. And um, it was sort of a make sure you know what you're doing, check you out. Um, Brother Gray, I used to be a smoker. Have you been able to get rid of the cigarettes? Yes, I have. And drinking was never an issue. So, you know, are you doing all the things that you need to do to be qualified? And uh, so we were having that meeting. Well, that meeting was taking place at their apartment, which I think is highly unusual. Uh, but my mom wouldn't allow them in our home anymore. And uh, that experience was another one, a side experience. Um, I think the missionaries taught in um, our, our home one time, maybe twice, but I think it was just once. And mom had been listening from her room. And after the missionaries left, uh, after giving me the discussion, uh, mom called me into her room and she said, uh, I don't want those two young men back here. And I said, why not, mama? And she became the black matriarch. This is my house, and I don't want them here. Do you understand? And the only response, appropriate response, was yes, ma'am. Well, I, I didn't, I couldn't fathom why she had taken that position, and yet I knew to leave it alone for a while. And um, part of the confusion I had is mom was very active in her church, yes, but she and dad had sent me to other churches as well. And now with dad gone, mom had friends in the Baptist church, uh, the Presbyterian or the Protestant church, Lutheran. Um, there was a woman who lived on the same street a number of blocks away who was a member of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And witnesses, I, I think, tend not to want to communicate or uh, share with other faiths. Well, this woman would come to our home and she and my mom would sit there and they wouldn't argue their faith. They would share. They would read from their various scriptures. And it was just a sisterhood. So to have my mom take the attitude or have the attitude that she did towards the Latter-day Saint missionaries really caused some confusion. Uh, so I waited a little while and I asked her why she had felt that way. And she told me a story about the day when 
we kids had not been born yet and uh, two young men came to the door and wanted to know if they could speak to her about their faith and uh, she said yes of course being a woman of faith and she invited them in and they began talking and shortly thereafter one of them looked at mom and said excuse me mrs gray but are you negro or do you have negroid blood and mom was a blend of you know black and native american and but she said yes of course and it was at that point that those two young men made a very hasty exit and the point was that they were latter-day saint missionaries and so here it was me now wanting to meet with the missionaries my mom seeing latter-day saints is prejudice and she didn't want me her only son involved with what she saw as a racist church so that's why here it is on friday the 25th uh, i'm meeting with the missionaries at their apartment and uh, as we were there in this sparsely um, furnished apartment we were all three uh, sitting on a sofa sort of staggered out so we could see one another and again they were asking their questions and finally one of them said uh, well, brother gray do you have any questions and i said yes i do and it was a question i had raised once before and uh, that was pointing at my skin i asked reading in the book of mormon it talks about people having a dark skin at times and being out of favor with God. Uh, how, if in any way, does that relate to me? And when I had asked it before, they told me, well, we'll get to that later. Well, this night later arrived. And that's when, uh, uh, after I asked the question, one of the two missionaries got up and he walked off over into a corner and left his companion there. And the companion said, quote, well, Brother Gray, the primary implication is that you won't be able to hold the priesthood. Now, I'll end the quote there because he went on to talk about me being cursed, but I don't remember any of the words after that. Uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was hearing coming from two young men, missionaries, devoting two years of their lives in the service of their, their faith, and yet there's sitting here one of them telling me i'm not worthy that i'm cursed uh, and cursed by god and i thought to myself there's no way in hell i'm going to be baptized into that church tomorrow and yet i was a hypocrite i didn't tell them that i just nodded and smiled when i left there i was so troubled i had already had a testimony of this faith otherwise i wouldn't have set a date to be baptized and to hear what I had just heard, how do I mesh the two? Uh, again, a proud black young man, and yet having a testimony of this faith as a continuation of the Christian training I'd already had. When I got home, I knew I couldn't go talk to my mother. I already knew how she felt. And she would just dismiss me as having been foolish and pursuing you know, this faith in the first place. I thought about going to the family that had been prominent in my being exposed to the LDS church. They only lived a few houses away, right on the same block, white family. And then I thought, wait a minute, if the missionaries feel this way, how do members of that family feel? Do they see me as cursed? Again, feeling isolated. So I uh, went on and got in my room, and uh, my room was an old converted sleeping porch and didn't have any heat in it. 
And uh, this was Colorado Springs, Colorado, over 6,000 foot elevation in December, and it can get a mite chilly. And uh, yet I always had the habit of opening the window, whether it was summer or winter, and uh, opening the windows, it slid open, and just giving my prayers to the sky at night. And so I did that this night. And uh, I uh, finished the prayer and was not at peace. Uh, yet I closed the window, closed the curtain. Mom made the curtains. Dad hung them, homemade you know, curtain rods. And uh, I tried to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. And now the true story is I entered into prayer a second time. And I, I moved the curtain, I opened the window, and I engaged God again. And I heard these words. This is the restored gospel, and you are to join. Nothing else. I did not see angels, did not see God, did not see Jesus. Just this is the restored gospel, and you are to join. And I knew I was hearing the voice of divinity. So with that, I closed the prayer, and the next day entered into the waters of baptism. God put me here. I feel I've been on a mission for all of these years, and I haven't gotten my release yet from this mission. Yeah. Well, you are where you're supposed to be. You are. And you have been where you needed to be and been doing the things you have and care there in support. No small feat. I know that. And I went to Boys Town at the age of 14. My, my mother uh, was concerned that I was hanging around the wrong people. And, and the typical story about not being uh, focused and having a, a mission and uh, staying out late, drinking, and, and that sort of stuff. And at the age of 14, she didn't want me to go down that road. So she went to the priest of the church and, and asked to help get me into Boys Town. And of course, I didn't know any of this and until the day before I went on that bus. I had no idea I was going to go to Boys Town. It, it gave me the foundation uh, that uh, has led me to, to say, why is it so difficult to love one another? Because in Boys Town, it was so easy. And we, we sort of helped each other alone. If somebody literally was down, you would have 25 people there trying to pick him up. And, and it was that kind of philosophy that I lived for four years uh, and gave me the potential, the foundation to um, be positive in life and to go out and, and be positive with people. And so Boys Town is today still a, a beacon of hope uh, in, in, in this, this, this terrible world that we live in. And I have to say, the first time we went back for, they have all school reunions every two years. And the first time I went back, you know, because we've been through a lot, you know, a lot of people don't think we should be together, you know. 40 years later. 
Yeah, you're so, a short timer. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I go to that reunion and it didn't matter. It was, you know, the the, the guys he went to school with, the, the Hispanic, the Chinese, the whites, everybody. It's like, oh, hi. I mean, it wasn't even, I mean, there was not even any question or anything. You know, now, oh, how long have you been together? Thinking that, oh, we've only been together for a couple of years. And like you said, you know, we're going on 40 years together. And it was just like a family. And I was so impressed. I mean, Boys Town is something else. It, it just, everybody just hugged everybody. And I'll never forget, we went to pick Mill's oldest daughter up in Cheyenne at the bus station. And there was a kid there with a Boys Town jacket on, a young man, what, 17, 18, if that. And Mel went out and said, hey, Boys Town. And they started talking like, I mean, they were the same age group, the same generation and everything. It's just that Boys Town bond is something else. It's, it's, almost indescribable my life has been blessed i'm i'm most grateful to god and to the people the friends uh those souls who uh, were willing to uh, give me a leg up uh give me an opportunity um see what my ambition might take me or where it might take me and what my abilities might be um, none of us gets anywhere alone and uh, so I'm mindful of all of those good folks along the way. Um, I'm old. Um, know that life is finite. And um, I don't know what will be in the future. But I'm concerned for that future. Because it needs to be better than some of the current that we see now. Uh, I wish everyone well. We are sharing the following conversation in connection with the film titled Companions. If you've seen the film, thank you. If not, we hope you will watch it and spend some time pondering the issues it raises. We intend this movie and its earlier installment, Heart of Africa, First of all, I'd like to say that was, thank you so much for sharing that beautiful, beautiful testimony there um, towards the end of the conversation. And a lot of people, I don't know if you've seen, but a lot of people in the chat have shared um, the same sentiments. Um, um, I, I guess I'll start off the questions a little bit and then we'll we'll go on. But um, you spoke about like an isolation, an isolation then and now, and mixing in a little bit of the comments um, that people have had. Someone said, let me go back up a little bit into the comments. Um, um, she says, the modern feeling of isolation is real. I feel it in my ward when members get up and share testimonies that make it clear that people of color have to be tolerated because that's, what's, that's what a Christian should do. Um, the word that stood out to me there is tolerated. Um, what, what comes to you then and how as, as a membership do we move from that from toleration to to something much much more heavenly. Wow, um, a number of years ago, a, a good member of the Forum of the Seventy 
uh, authored a book, and I believe its title was Tolerance, uh, or, or that was one of the key words, at least in the title. And uh, not to speak negatively toward the book and its intent, um, the message was that we ought to learn to tolerate one another. And I, I thought of that second great commandment that we were given. It didn't say a new commandment I give unto you that ye tolerate one another, rather that we love one another. And there's a world of difference between the two. And we need to move beyond tolerance and thinking that, well, I'm doing this uh, as uh, a Christian and I, I need to be mindful of this individual, whomever he or she is. No, it's not be mindful. It's not be tolerant of. It's to look and see your brother or your sister. Um, my, my training has been that we are indeed a family. Uh, regardless of race and ethnicity, uh, place of birth, age, um, gender, all of those things, we are the children of heavenly parents. And we have been commanded by our heavenly father to love one another, to support one another. Uh, it would be well if we would all go to the New Testament and read the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, see what it is that the Savior uh, wants us to do and how we are to be. And I, I think that would take the place of being tolerant of one another or being dismissive of one another or being politically guided in our interactions towards one another. Um, today's landscape is really filled with political speech. Um, and speech that is judgmental and uh, uh, takes sides. And I'm not saying one side or the other side, I'm saying sides, plural. We need to dismiss the political speech, those concepts. We need to, we need to embrace the Christian speech, that which we find in the scriptures. Thank you. Uh, Chris and Rebecca, I'm not sure if you had some specific questions you wanted to go through. If not, I can keep going. Yeah. Oh, I did want to just underline and, and ask you again, because several people have commented on the word tolerance. In fact, that that's a word they're hearing from the pulpit in testimony meeting that I am supposed to tolerate uh, and uh, showing up in I guess the, the reference would be back to uh, Darius, your comments about voting patterns in, uh, in Utah in particular, but the, um, making you concerned about the, the, how people are viewing uh, the other, uh, black or gay, um, that's another kind of comment that's coming up here. The whole concept of tolerance is something that people are asking about. Last weekend, um, my son and I were talking about some of these issues. And uh, he said, Dad, paraphrasing, uh, 
would you t say today is better or was it better back in the early days of the civil rights movement? And uh, I thought for a moment and uh, I said back in the early days, whether it was in the 1940s or 50s, 60s. Um, and the reason was for my comment that there was a sense of hope for many of us then thinking and feeling that if uh, our white brothers and sisters could understand the situations that were there uh, involving persons of color, uh, those brothers and sisters would have a softened heart, uh, would be willing to move forward in their approach and attitudes uh, to one another. And the difference, the distinction today is that we're hardened. Uh, we dig in our heels. Uh, we take a, a stance often guided uh, by political rhetoric, which is hard and dismissive and demeaning. And if, if the best you can get out of that rhetoric is tolerance, then you might want to examine whether it is the approach that one should take. Um, Yeah, one of the things that you talk about in your essay, Healing the Wounds of Racism, um, that you wrote during that 50th um, year commemoration of the revelation um, that restored priesthood to and temple blessings to all of the saints. Uh, you talk about the importance of learning a new approach. And it really strikes me that uh, you know, in the in the 60s, there were kind of possibilities and folks were coming up with some new approaches, right? Um, but, but the kind of, um, you know, what we see happening today is still this refusal to learn a new approach that we're still kind of going through um, kind of the same ways of thinking about racism that, um, that we're still, you know, thinking about it as, you know, maybe how we feel about each other on in kind of a surface way that racism is an interpersonal problem and it looks particular ways rather than really kind of digging in uh, deep to confront um, the ways that uh, it, it manifests itself in the world today. So what are some ways that we can, um, you know, really get to some new approach? Um, uh, I would throw it back to the uh, document you mentioned, um, the um, essay, Healing the Wounds of Racism. Um, you can find it on Google under the LDS Church. Uh, and I, I outline some of the approaches there and some of the things to look at within ourselves. Um, we need to come to recognize, oops, maybe I have a problem. Maybe I might want to rethink this. Uh, there are pointers there, guideposts there that might be beneficial. And thank you for bringing that up. Um, it is simple. It, the gospel of Jesus Christ is simple. It's straightforward. It's recognizing who we are, who God is, who the Savior is, and what it is we are about. Why are we here? There's something especially unique in, in the teachings of the restored gospel. We have an idea of why we are here. We are to grow. We are to become like the Father and like the Son. And this is a learning experience 
I often like it to liken it to being at university. Um, it's an open book class. We have the scriptures. Um, and yet our tuition has been paid by the Savior. And the lessons we're to learn are to become like the Father and the Son, straightforward. All of the other stuff, it's, it's fluff. Um, get to the basics. Uh, know what it is we are about, who we are, and what we are to do, and how we are to see and treat one another. To me, it's that, that straightforward. But, yeah, check out um, Healing the Wounds of Racism. Um, there, there are no secret, special answers, really, just some simple approaches. Bryce, I could I ask you to put some more dates and uh, time frame on the things that, that we're talking about, that you're talking about? I, um, you know that I'm <clears throat> not quite as old as you, but... Um, we were around in 1978, and I remember the feeling um, around that time. We're done. We're we've we've the church has moved on, and um, a very large amount of what you're talking about is is not back before 1978. It's now. It's yesterday. It's last year. Uh, and I could you could you speak to that kind of a timeline or the dates of things that we're talking about here. Uh, Chris, you're right on target. Uh, it was a, a, a signal day time in 1978. Uh, I remember those details very well. Um, and not to discount that, I don't know that the members of the church or even the brethren in the church fully understood the significance of what had occurred with that revelation in, in June of 1978. It didn't just open the door for persons of color, Black of African descent, uh, to have priesthood and to go to the temple, uh, men, women, uh, to serve in missions. Uh, it was so much more than that. And I, I don't know that that message got through. Um, there were many white members of the church who were terribly tired of answering the questions to their friends, to other Christians about the church's position on race. They wanted to just put it behind them. We're done, it's, it's over. But we didn't talk about changing hearts. We didn't talk about seeing one another differently. And, and it sounds repetitive to say, but again, that's how simple it is. We, we took an institutional position, changed a policy, and made available opportunities that had been there early and then removed. Uh, we made those available again. I call it a restoration of the priesthood being available to persons of color of African descent. Um, but we didn't talk about the heart. And uh, that's the timeline. Um, I, I don't see it in, in, in terms of timeline. I, I, I see it in terms of recognizing what it is we're dealing with, what we're talking about, what the issues are. 
Um, but you're right. Uh, it, it only went part of the way. Uh, and uh, uh, it was welcomed beyond measure, uh, but it only went part of the way. And we still have such a distance to go. I am uplifted by the fact that uh, General Conference is coming up very quickly now. And I hearken back to what was said in October conference last year, 2020. Uh, the uh, talks by President uh, uh, Nelson, uh, the talk by President Oaks, uh, and I believe Elder Cook, um, those approaches had not been before. Those sorts of open comments had not occurred before. Um, there was some disquiet about certain things that were said and how emphasis was given to maybe some negatives as well as uh, positives. Um, but that, that was a step. And even that month, October of 2020, I, I loved what President Oaks said when he uh, addressed the forum at BYU uh, later that same month. And uh, so I would point people to that, um, where he talked about Black Lives Matter. And it's not just that, of course, all lives matter, but when other lives have not mattered or have mattered less, that we needed to recognize Black Lives Matter and calling that what it is, an eternal principle. We've come a long way. Uh, I'm excited about the growth that uh, has occurred, uh, the change in direction and tone, and I look forward um, for more of that in the coming conferences and hopefully that will change attitudes in the hearts of the members. I wanna bring in a question from um, Facebook that asks, uh, what kind of advice do you have for young black members, uh, especially those kind of in the heart of um, uh, the institutional church in Utah Valley um, in Salt Lake who feel the isolation and, uh, and, and how can they keep the strength um, in the church during these times? Gird up thy loins, fresh courage take. <laughs> um, it's tough. Um, no need to lie about it, it's tough. And, and yet we each have a challenge. Uh, and whether you are on the black side or the white side, uh, it's a challenge. Um, it's not letting the wounds or the fears or the misunderstanding be what drives you. Um, know who you are, know whose you are and what it is you're about. But no, it's tough. Um, when I uh, attended BYU, I, I was there for one year and left on a dead run. Um, and there were two African-American students out of an entire student body of 20,000 plus. Um, there were uh, a few Nigerians uh, who had arrived, I think, in um, March or April of 1960 six and or 65 1965 uh, a, a Panamanian a grad student who arrived I think in uh, May and I arrived in June of uh, 
1965. I think at the time, Provo was the largest American city without a resident black family. Now, that says a lot. And, and I remember when that black family, the first one moved in and appropriately, they were the Browns, the surname. But yeah, it's tough. It's, it's, you're isolated, um, but know who you are. Uh, know what you're about. I know that your feelings are going to get hurt and it's real. You don't need to deny that. You shouldn't deny that, but you can't let it canker you if, if you're about becoming Christ-like. Um, find ways to heal yourself so that you can then help others heal. And it's going to be individual. Uh, I, I wish there were an answer that uh, puts salve on all of the wounds uh, and, and makes it all better. But no, it, it's, it's tough. So gird up thy loins and fresh courage take. Brother Graham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here. Hopefully I'm not going to sit here and cry, but, <laughs> you know, a lot of the things that you said um, at me as a BYU alum, uh, student of color, then um, now working with the Black Alumni uh, Association uh, Society, um, and just seeing a lot of the comments here from a lot of, um, a lot of names I recognize in uh, young Black youth, but, um, you know, trying to understand that, that it's, it's a very individual effort. Yeah. Um, understanding that without that, without that, that, you know, your own, um, your own foundation is just, it, it just, it's just not going to happen because of the difficulty, the degree of difficulty in this, in this work. Um, even someone, you know, you, you, you call, you, you know, you call this, it's a calling for you, right? Um, and someone said a calling to the LDS church, right? Um, and a lot of us feel that way, and then someone said, but to be released from that call, right? That's how burdensome this, mm -hmm. this feels. Um, and, and, and it doesn't end. And just like you said, I think a lot of us have felt like, what is that sob? What is that bomb? You know? Um, and I don't know, I guess I just wanted to share that, that, that my, my appreciation and, and gratitude for all the work that you've done. A lot of us affectionately call you Papa Gray. Um, because that's, that's who you've been. Even, even if some of us have only seen you once or twice, that's how we felt. Um, and to bring in, uh, one of the questions here, you know, um, I, I guess you've, you've kind of answered this, you know, how do you sit in a congregations of brothers and sisters who spout and encourage the disavowed teachings during our various meetings, knowing they don't have your interest in their care? Um, you know, how do we, um, how do we let them know that it's someone mentioned the generations that need to be better are are ours. It's now, not our kids or our grandkids in the future. Is it's a change that needs to happen now, um, and so and so to 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 know that and to understand that. How do we also um, um, kind of see that? even within this movement, even within all, even if we all have similar experiences, there's, we're all at um, several different levels. And so even within that, let's say movement, how do we come together? Someone mentioned, you know, how do we bring together, you know, there's different, there's Africans, African-Americans, even within that there's, um, there's, there's this tribalism. Um, so how can we, how can we um, consolidate that and, and, and try to, be a bomb to each other when some of us don't have that foundation. Um. 
and 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 some and, and again you're you're on target um we we have that tribalism as margaret mentioned in the lead-in um racism tribalism um uh, we come from our own perspectives and we try to apply that make everyone fit our image of how it ought to be uh, good luck with making that work um if we can't have a common view of what it is we are about, uh, then we're not going to get there. Uh, it is a, truly a team effort here, and we need to set aside those ancillary approaches and views um, and, and, and find out what it is the team is about. Uh, I, I want to comment on something that's very troubling uh, to me right now. Um, I am aware that in several different states in, in these United States, um, there are those black Latter-day Saints who have during this period of COVID, um, and again, all of the political speech, found their wards less than inviting, less than sustaining, and where they, Black members of the church, are meeting separately. To think that we've come to the point that we feel we need to meet separately, because I've heard the comment, I don't feel safe in my home ward. Lord, that ought to say a lot. That ought to yell that there's an issue, a problem. If we are among fellow Latter-day Saints and can't feel safe, not that we are doubting the leadership of the brethren, of the divinity of the restored gospel, um, Christ is our Savior, not people leaving the church, but feeling that they need to find some place for respite. We need to stop trying to have it the way the world would have it. We need to do it in a Christ-centered way. Um, and, and I mention that because it gives a sense of the severity of the issues facing us today. Um, be ye one. No. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not condemning those who are seeking to meet separately, not in the least. I want that very, very clear. But I am condemning the attitudes that they're finding, the lack of support, the lack of uh, understanding, uh, the judgments that they are finding in their wards where they feel the need to be elsewhere. I condemn that. God condemns, I believe. I'm reminded... I'm, I'm reminded of the, the words of the late Reverend James Cohen, who talks about the white church not, not being God's redemptive agent, um, but rather an agent of the old society. And that, that racism has been a part of the church so long that it's virtually impossible <laughs> for even folks who would consider themselves good members um, to recognize what's there and the effect that it's having on, um, on the membership, um, on our dear brothers and sisters of color. 
Uh, I'm also, I kind of reread uh, Dialogues Fall 2019 issue that has an essay by Daylin and, and a number of other um, people of color in it uh, sharing their experiences. Uh, and uh, an essay by uh, Tanisha Zandamela, she talks about the importance of seeing where we come from and really fully melding our multiple pioneer ancestries together and that um, you know, that really strikes me as the kind of, you know, being one that we have yet to achieve, right? We get snapshots of it. And when we do, when we feel it, it's marvelous. Um, when we truly look at one another as brother or sister, and, and we embrace that and feel the love, uh, it's marvelous. But yeah, we, we've got a, a way to go. Um, there is surface cleaning and then there's deep cleaning. And sometimes I think our hearts have been surface cleaned and they need to be deep cleaned. Um, Yeah, Darius, the, your comments about people meeting separately is just heartbreaking. And I, I'm sorry it needs to be said, but I'm glad you bring it up. Um, I have a different kind of question. When you said all, at least, at least polite comments or questions are, are fair game, um, Yes. I, I'd like to try this one. Um, I've, uh, I've been reading Anthea Butler's book, White, Evangel White Evangelical Racism, in which she says, um, evangelicalism, I don't know if I said that right, white evangelicalism is not simply a religious group, but a national political movement to support the white Christian men running things. Um, that caught me. And I'd like to ask whether you see that still happening in the, in the LDS church. Yes. I don't have to hesitate. Is it everywhere? Is it everyone? Certainly not. Uh, are all people um, insensitive to what's going on? Of course not. Uh, so many of our brothers and sisters, white brothers and sisters, are very mindful of and working toward. And, and I, I, I want to hurriedly give them credit for being Christ-centered, uh, because that's what it comes to. But yes, there are still those in leadership. Um, I think I'm kind of grandfathered in, Chris. Uh, I've been around so long. Um, and from my past, you know, calling in, in the Genesis presidency. Uh, and at that time, the Genesis branch was considered a, a dependent branch. And we were to be a resource to state presidents, bishops um, uh, throughout the country. And, and so we sent a newsletter at that time in those years all over the country. And so I still hear from people all over the country and there's good news and there's not so good news. Uh, there are hearts which have been deep cleaned and hearts yet to be washed. 
uh, to be introduced to the washcloth or our soap. Um, and the same sorts of things that we see and hear coming from Black members in the evangelical community of the separateness that they are feeling. And, and I've read those comments as well. I, I've heard from others uh, around the country and other denominations. Yes, uh, that is indicative of what we have. Uh, we, we have in many cases a leadership um, of individuals, good men who have always done it a certain way, been told that is the right way, and it is not inclusive of others, and it's not approaching the issues. It's, it's sort of dismissing issues. Um, I, I won't go into details, but I, I remember a, a situation concerning my patriarchal blessing uh, that was very disquieting. And uh, um, I had asked my bishop at the time to go with me for a redo. Let's do past two, uh, patriarchal blessing 2.0. And uh, he went with me and the, the, the interaction was troubling and trying to move forward with that good man who is a dear friend, uh, but he had to do things in a prescribed way and finally suggested that I, I meet with the state president. And I did that. And the state president says, well, let me give this some thought. <laughs> and it, it never got off of some thought. Um, the issue that I had never was addressed. Um, I, I love those men. I support them in their callings um, in those years past. But if we don't respond to real issues, if our eyes won't open and acknowledge true troubling issues, racism, let me just racism. If we don't acknowledge that, if our leaders don't acknowledge that, then they are not helping to heal not only the, the wounds and the persons of color and Black members, members of color, because it's not just Black, but they are also not helping to heal the wounds in my white brothers and sisters who are equally damaged by false information, misinformation, half-truths, lies, so, yeah, the same issues that are afflicting certain areas of the white evangelical community do afflict us in the LDS community. Um, as I think about um, those comments and then you talking about, you know, you, <laughs> you got out of Dodge after a year at BYU. <laughs> um, and, and that was by design, right? So BYU policies were, were actually designed to encourage black students to not feel comfortable and to, and to want to leave. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and there's still some kind of designs, um, you know, and kind of baked into the structure that folks are reluctant to um, recognize um, or to kind of see the, see the effects. Uh, we do see some positive things happening, right? Um, and I'm thinking particularly 
about BYU's um, race equity and belonging uh, committee and the recommendations that they've now made, which were all made public. Um, and, uh, and I'm also thinking about your conversation with Mel and, and the kind of different ways to work for change. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Uh, I, I'm grateful that you brought that up. And uh, could you give a citation for everyone so they'll know where to find that uh, so they can read that policy and go into details? Um, but don't just read the cover statement. I am admonishing everyone, please don't just read the cover um, page, uh, but go into the details, the links that are there. What has happened at BYU? Did I ever think I would see that happen? Not on this side of the veil, no, no. Uh, it's been remarkable. Uh, change is occurring. And yet within that change, there's the resistance. People who are from an old perspective, seeing the change and feeling threatened by it are giving pushback. But we need to be mindful of that change and the fact that change is occurring for the positive. So if you would offer that, Rebecca. Okay, super, I see you've got a link there. Go and read that and be uplifted. Um, you know, I don't want this to be all gloom and doom. Um, no, we, we have work to do. Uh, we have deep cleaning to undergo. But uh, boy, there are things occurring within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, under President Nelson uh, that I never envisioned would occur. And, and so there is hope and reason for increased hope. But again, the church, the brethren, the organization, the institution can only put it in front of us. We've got to be willing, after being led to the water, we've got to be willing to drink. I'm also uh, wondering if, and maybe Dalen wants to talk about this too. Um, you know, we look at this report and think, oh, uh, you know, look at what BYU is doing, look at what the church is doing, but this doesn't, something like this doesn't just happen, <laughs> right? That there's a lot of groundwork uh, behind the scenes, the kind of quietly working for change that you talk about in your, your interview um, with Mel uh, that, that made this happen right? That it's, um, you know, students like uh, Daylin and her husband, Donald and Tanisha and Melody Jackson and a whole host and of you other folks. And Chris <laughs> and Molly. And, you know, we are all involved with this, all of us. And yeah, you're right. It takes a lot of legwork. It takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of stick to itiveness. Um, because there are those obstacles, there is the pushback, and and yet it does happen. Um, and in in terms of my history and my involvement, um, there's a saying in in the Black Church that I love, and it for me is so real. To God goes the glory. Um, for I'm weak and uh, have at times wanted to give up. Um, there have been times when I, I've gone on basically sabbatical, I call it walkabout. I, I just need to pull back from this for a while, not to lose my testimony or to deny the truthfulness that I know that I, I can't absorb anymore right now. I need to recharge my batteries. That happens to all of us, regardless of uh, race. But yet we need to stay in the fray. 
Um, Darius, I love the words you used earlier about restoration of the priesthood in 1978. That's a beautiful way to think about it. Um, and it leads me to both tie to what you just said and that comment. A common, a mutual friend of ours uh, told me that part of his testimony, part of the reason he stays in the church, this is a gay man who's had some extreme stress, is having learned from you to um, believe in the church that is to come, um, to want to see what's next. Um, could you, I don't know, I'm, this is a mutual friend, so I don't know that you even said that, but it was a beautiful thought. I'd like to ask you to reflect on that thought. Or give me a little bit more focus because I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, the, the question is, how can you stay in the church the way it is, the way that it um, okay. causes people to okay. meet in a, separate, in a separate place to feel safe? How can you stay? And the, and the answer had to do with what I look forward to, what I hope for, what I want to see next. Uh, and, and it is what I look forward to. It's what I know. What I know is God is in charge. Ultimately, God will win. And the godly approach and attitude, whether it's on matters of race, gender, sexual orientation, God will win. And we will be the one family because that's the way he's designed it. We won't be pushing others away and singling them out as them, they, it'll be us. And, and so in the interim, those of us who are deemed the other, whatever the other is, need to recognize that God will win. We need to be on that side and how we approach this situation, this continuum, this passage, uh, uh, we need to focus on that. I, I, I remember when I worked at BYU for a number of years, I went over to the uh, Lee Library and I found a book that contained uh, some quotes that had been researched and scholars believed were indeed uh, attributable to the Savior. And one of them, and I'm paraphrasing, and I hope um, it's fairly close, this world is a bridge. Build not your dwelling there. Become passers-by. This world is a passage. Um, don't build your home here. Don't make this the be-all, do-all, see-all, because it isn't. Um, become passers-by. Um, I, I, I don't know how to say it otherwise. We have different challenges based on the circumstances that we've found ourselves in. Um, our placement on earth at this time, our orientations, our, our looks, our gender. Um, Grow as we can grow in, in the field as it is. Try and help 
nourish the field, to try and help weed the field uh, and, and do what you can now with the tools you have now and realize that this isn't it all. This isn't everything. But ultimately, if we approach it the right way, we will be on the right side, Father's side. And I, I, I know that nothing that I can point to and give a do A, B, C, followed by, you know, D, E, F, no. Um, hope it helps. Well, everyone tired of me by now? There are so many questions in the chat. I mean, these <laughs> there's so many. I don't know if we can get through them all. Um, but I mean, this is a beautiful place to end. I don't know if anyone, if Rebecca or Chris wanted to make, um, wanted to add any other question, but. I wanted to. I wanted to close on that comment. So. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, again, for um, being so engaged. And of course, of course, thank you, Papa Gray, <laughs> for for your thoughts and for your, your wisdom, truly, and for um, your faith and courage. Um, I think that a lot of us, even haven't met you once or never, um, take in. Um, because we, we we all continue to go through through similar circumstances, so so thank you. Thank you. Hang in there, everybody. Um, don't let nobody turn you around. Turn you around. It's an old song that you might want to find in the, the civil rights history and listen to it. Know who you are. Stay grounded. Point in the right direction, and don't let nobody turn you around. Yes. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you, daughter. All right. We'll close today. Um, Jordan Harvey, a, uh, a native of Las Vegas, um, a lawyer, um, and he's also part of the BYU Black Alumni Society Board of Directors. We'll be giving our closing prayer, um, excuse me, prayer. Um, and just as a reminder that we'll meet again on April 11th. Um, so please tune in, uh, tune in where we'll be pleased to hear from David James Gonzalez, who is Assistant Professor of History at BYU in Provo, Utah, where he teaches courses on race, uh, race ethnicity, uh, immigration, and Latinos and Latinas in the US history. Oh, I'm sorry. And one more thing, a lot of people have been asking, yes, this is recorded and will be available on dialoguejournal.com um, and on YouTube and of course, Facebook as well. It'll stay there. Our beloved Father in heaven, we come before thee on this Sabbath day to give thee thanks for all of our many blessings. We thank thee, Father, for the restoration of thy church in the latter days, for the restoration of the gospel, and of priesthood power that binds us all together. We're grateful for the gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the ability that we have to heal and be healed from the things uh, that afflict us. Father, at this time, we also give thee thanks for those who have been called upon and who have answered the call to move thy work forward in extraordinary and oftentimes unrecognized and unappreciated ways. We know, Father, and, and we recognize that this work of restoration is not over, and we ask thee 
humbly to give us the strength, the wisdom, and the spiritual clarity to understand how we can best participate and, and contribute to that work, to the unfolding and ongoing restoration of thy church and thy truth. We're grateful for Brother Darius Gray and all that he has done in those efforts and to the many that he has inspired to continue on with that work. Grateful for all of those who have put together this program and programs like it. We ask that thy spirit will be with us as we continue on throughout this day and throughout this week to know what thou would have us do to bless thy children and further thy work. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts.